You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts, but the Lakers have two. Bryant, to shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! Jordan. Oh, a spectacular move by Michael Jordan! And now, your host. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Thanks for finding us and tuning in. This is Aaron Fishman, here with a double interview episode featuring NBA draft analyst Javier Pesquera, just in time for this year's draft, and Agu Ibanez Baldor, author of Dynasty, the rise and fall of the greatest teams in NBA history. Javier last graced us with his presence more than three years ago, when he helped us preview the 2017 draft, another draft whose lottery section featured a guard named L. Ball, Lonzo then, LaMelo now. These days, Javier continues to study prospects closely, sharing his insight with the masses on Twitter, while also helping behind the scenes at thestepian.com. Following the draft discussion, Agu talks about his book, a narrative that explores the league's past dynasties, chapter by chapter, in an effort to determine the best ingredients to build a bona fide dynasty in the here and now. As the son of two immigrants, he was exposed to soccer by his dad, a professor. He wound up gaining an appreciation for American sports in a little bit more of a non-traditional way. According to a household rule, every month would include one TV-free week, where only sports or educational programming were allowed to be viewed. So he could watch TV during that week, a young Agu chose sports, and he kept picking it again and again, before long falling in love with the discipline. I'm obligated to note that we spoke on Sunday, more than 30 hours before any Milwaukee trades were announced, so his Bogdan Bogdanovich to the Bucks prediction was a smart one, and not a hot take after all. So I'm looking forward to discussing his book with him. But first, we'll begin with Javier Pesquera, who also appeared on Sunday. Here we go. Thanks for joining me, Javier. Oh, thank you. Anytime I love talking about this type of stuff, you know that. Oh, yeah. I definitely know that. I'd love for you first to share a little bit about your process for forecasting picks, when you start spending a lot of time on an upcoming draft class, where you research, who you talk to, stuff like that. And then if you don't mind, please give me your projected top 10 picks before going a little bit more in depth on why you expect the top three to unfold as you do. Yeah, for me, like, I never thought that, like, actually forecasting was that important until a few years ago. Like, I've been following drafts and, like, kind of doing scouting in a way or another for a long while. But then you realize that actually the way the league perceives talent is important both during that draft night to map the draft and be able to, like, maneuver plus i think also related to trade value down the road like if a guy gets picked higher eventually might actually impact the way they get treated during their time in the league and also mm, the that's a good point yeah the opportunity they get they are given though like if you are picked in the top 10 you're gonna get a much longer lease than if you're picking the second round right so all of that kind of got me into getting more intel related to where guys might go and using that to project and to in the end, affect my board one way or another. Like, I don't let it to affect my opinions too much, but I think it can be like a tiebreaker somehow, sometimes. 
Yeah. I know people around the league from, I don't know, like just social media, being in Twitter for a long while, being in these type of circles for a long while. I, I've been through like a couple interview processes with teams before I didn't get any job, but like I got to meet people that way too. So like in the end, just with that, talking to agents, talking to scouts, talking to in general, people in Twitter as well, like there's always things that come your way. And I think just like being open and being talkative to the right people and you will get some information always. And mm-hmm. it's, it's always useful, not just for like having an idea of what's going to happen, which is always interesting. It's more, like I said, to put together more or less like a value point and use that to impact my rankings also. Okay. That yeah. makes sense. One other thing I wanted to add before you go into your top 10 is I would think where player drafts significantly impacts expectations. So you have to really perform a lot better if you're a top pick or it's much more easy to be labeled a bust, for instance. Yeah, of course. I think that's more psychological than anything. Like mm-hmm. That's sometimes what happens when guys get picked. Some guys will get picked higher and I would not mind, even though I don't think they're prepared or they're the right type of talent for that selection. Like, for example, last year with RJ Barrett on the Knicks, I would have not had RJ third in terms of like the best players in that class pre-draft either. But like I thought New York was kind of locked into selecting him because they couldn't really like put the expectations on a guy that was projected to go like mid-teens, like you said before, right? Like if mm-hmm. like even if it was the right pick, like it's difficult sometimes to do that. Like I feel like Charlotte, we will talk about it later on. Like I feel like Charlotte has a similar situation this year in 2020. Like if they pick anybody else other than Anthony Edwards, which is like consensus top three and he's the most likely guy to be available in my opinion at third like that's gonna be such a unexpected outcome so it's always tricky when you want to put everything in perspective like sometimes teams are kind of like trapped in a peak and the best decision could be to just straight out of that position so you just mentioned anthony edwards at three who are the rest of your top ten yeah i mean it's different when we're talking about like what i think is going to happen and what i will have rank like if we're talking about my board like, it's difficult for me to... I was more interested to hear who your projections are, but you can do both if you want. I mean, it's not... I, I don't think it's going to take that long. Like, at number mm-hmm. one, I do have Lamelo Ball in his own tier by himself, and I think Lamelo Ball is going to go number one unless Minnesota actually finds a trade that they like, which I don't think is happening at this point. Number two, I think in the draft, in the end, it's going to be James Wiseman. I have Wiseman... A tad lower than that. I have him seventh or around that area. I will explain later. In my opinion, Obi Toppin is the second best prospect in this class. Wow. Uh, number three, uh, I do have Denny Avdia, the Israeli. And I think, like we mentioned before, if Charlotte ends up in this situation, they're going to pick Anthony Edwards. Number four, I think Denny Avdia, the guy that I have number three, is going to go there. In my personal board, I have Alexei Pokusevsky, the Serbian guy who is like the international man of mystery this year, although I think that's a bit overstated. Like, always happens with guys from Europe when it comes to the US. Like, you play the mystery card. There's more tape on him than you will think or all people will think, kind of. Like, it's not that mm-hmm. difficult to, to see him and, and see the attributes. And then number five in the actual draft, I think is going to be Obi Toppin to Cleveland. Uh, and I, I have Anthony Edwards in my uh, rankings there. And in terms of number six, uh, I thought it was going to be Isaac Okoro uh, from Auburn, but uh, the last few days, like, I kind of changed my mind. I think it's going to be Tyrese Halliburton, the, the point guard from Iowa State, who's going to go there. I have not, like, my rankings from six to the middle of the teens are kind of, like, very flat because this class, to me, gets super flat at that point. But, like, from six to ten, I will have a mix between Killian Hayes, James Wiseman, Isaac Okoro, Onyeka Okongu, 
etc etc so like i don't think in this case with my board it matters that much i have a quick question sorry to interrupt when you say flat do you mean that it's really fluid and there's kind of a wide range for a lot of those guys where you're not really sure where they'll end up or what do you mean by flat i'm pretty certain like i think i can forecast the top 15 of this draft pretty accurately at this point like i mean some things could change from now until until wednesday but like I'm pretty certain about some picks. It's just more for me when you get into that tier or into that group of players, it is really flat because the talent difference is not that big. Like I don't see a standout or a guy that has to be ranked 100% above another. So it's more about that. Okay, I I understand what you're saying. So there's kind of a little bit of a talent drop off after the top tier, but then it's really steady after that. Yeah, like I, I will have like Lamelo Ball in his own tier. Then I have like four or five guys, and then I have a group of like 10, 15 guys that are basically more or less interchangeable. So that's what I mean. Yeah. Okay. And then going back to where I think is going to happen, uh, we were at number six, the Atlanta Hawks with Atlanta Hawks with Halliburton. Mm-hmm. I think at number seven is kind of like being leaked out there, and I think is he has real legs that the Detroit Pistons are going to pick uh, Patrick Williams, the first man from Florida State. Number eight is the Knicks, like. It's the one in the top 10 that I have more doubts about, but I would project Isaac Okoro, the, the Auburn small forward. At number nine, with the Wizards, I would, I would think they will pick Onyeka Okongu, the, the big man from USC. And number 10, with the Suns, uh, I, w- I think is the one that deviates the most from my board in terms of value. I think they're going to pick Aaron Nesmith from Vanderbilt, and I think it's probably the pick I would ra- like rate the lowest in this top 10 if they, if they actually do that. I was wondering about your thoughts on Killian Hayes. I've seen him as high as four on certain boards. It was more of a mock draft with a number of people and not just yeah. one person doing it. And then as low as the low lottery, where do you see him going? Yeah, I think uh, there's this knowledge or this information about like Chicago liking him. But I think if they pick him, it will be in a trade down. Like They're not going to pick him at four. I think it's just like sometimes people get these scoops and they want to match a team with a player. And they mm-hmm. are not taking into account that it would be like if they move down in the in the lottery. I think the highest he might go is eighth to the Knicks, but I expect him to go somewhere between eleventh and nineteenth. Like I think his range is pretty much all over the teams. If I had to select or mock him somewhere, honestly, I would be torn between maybe Sacramento, New Orleans, or Orlando. I'm not really sure exactly. Like he's just he's the guy with the most a wide range of outcomes for me like it's just difficult to actually yeah. come to a conclusion or decide on a pick i don't think he will go below 19th though like i think either somebody will pick him there or somebody will move up for him uh but yeah i don't think he goes top 10 but i think he goes somewhere between late lottery and late teens kind of okay that's good to know i'd love for you to spend a little bit of time on ob top and he's 22 and a half he's going to be 23 next march so that's pretty old in terms of draft prospects, but so many people are raving about him lately. Yeah, I think there are like a lot of doubters as well. Like he's just, I mean, I do like him. I think he has as much potential as any bar in this class and it's just related to his physical tools. Like I know his hips are kind of bad and like he's not the most flexible guy, but like I do believe he has room to grow athletically still. He's 6'8", 6'9", he has a solid wingspan. He is not as heavy as you will think because he looks jacked and, and strong. And I think he can still like bulk up noticeably. Like he's kind of old for being a sophomore, but it's because he kind of went to prep school before Dayton. He also registered one year in Dayton, so like it's kind of like 
older than, than a, re a regular sophomore, but also in terms of experience on the court, he has experience of a sophomore, not of a senior, though, even if the age uh, difference is there, right? So I don't mm -hmm. think he has a lot of upside still as a shooter. Like I saw insane flashes for a guy with his athleticism uh, shooting the ball. And I think eventually he's going to be a really complete offensive player. Like he has a lot of vision and like he makes like, like very impressive passes at a time. And he has like this terrific athletic. Like if you watch it, you, you watch his highlights for like half a minute and you like the comparison to Amaris to the Meyer pops in your head right away because of the way they like just leap off the floor and the way they finish in transition. Like I think he has that type of ability. It's just the downside is more on the defensive end. Like he might be problematic especially on the move or in pick and roll but like in the end like guys that are that athletic even they have like some limitations in terms of mobility like at least during the regular season in the nba they kind of carry okay like they they might be like a neutral to a slightly negative player which is bad for a big but it's i think it's tenable if he's giving you that much offensively which i think he could Mm -hmm. The guy you said some people are referring to as the international man of mystery who's not really that mysterious, yeah. Alexei Pokusevsky. From what I've seen in various mock drafts, he kind of ha has a wide range of where people are projecting him to go. Some have him going as early as the lottery, and I've seen some where he's barely in the first round. Why is he so polarizing according to these mock drafts, in your opinion? and how good do you think he can be? I think the situation with him is like a balance between a risk and value proposition. Like I, I like him enough to take the risk early. I think teams are going to be a bit more cautious with that. But like, honestly, I don't think the risk is that high. Like I, I think he's readier than people think to contribute to a good team in a small role. Like the guy has really good feel and really good instincts. He does wild stuff sometimes, like of course with his age and his ability, but like, I don't think he's a long shot to actually be a player early on. Like he needs to fill up physically, of course, and like develop there. But like he does impact the game already, like with his length and his feel and his fluidity. And he has like this shooting ability that is very, very rare for a guy that is like, I mean, honestly, he's a bit taller than seven foot barefoot. For NBA standards, like I've been told that he will clear seven two. So like he's just he's really, 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 really tall and like has this insane wide low base like he the guy can like actually like get low like a guard like you like he's seven two but like he's built in a way that is basically a super elongated torso so it doesn't like it's not like his body mechanics are like the ones of a seven two guy that would be more stiff or like had a harder time moving around you know like he's just he's very fluid and, and very perimeter oriented in terms of range i think he's definitely going in the first round actually since like when i will have not be able to tell but like since today this trade between uh, the, the Thunder and the Lakers was official. Like, uh, actually, I think the Thunder are picking up the second first round from the Lakers, the 20, number 28, and they're likely to package it up with number 25, which is their own, to move up. And my guess is they're probably going to try to move up to Portland's uh, pick, which is number 16th, because Portland has been rumored to pick Jay Scrab, a uh, guy that uh, comes out of press school, uh, sorry, Juco right away. Mm -hmm. And uh, and he's more ranked towards the, I mean, I will not even have him there, but like most people think he could be like an early second rounder. So I think Portland is moving down, taking two picks, and OKC is moving up to pick Pokusevsky ahead of like Dallas and Minnesota, which are two teams that I heard at least have done their homework on him. I don't know if they like him or not. It's a bit difficult to get intel on that. But like I know they have done their homework, and I'm pretty sure OKC is going to 
be moving up and trying to secure him at number 16. Who are some of your sleepers, whether you define that as someone who may go later in the draft than his ability or potential would warrant and might become good later on, or someone who may be drafted higher than a lot of people are projecting? Yeah, to me, I mean, we talk about Pokusevsky already, like I have him rank much higher than that. So I, I could mention him as a sleeper, although he's more mainstream nowadays. I feel like he's a well-known commodity almost. I mm-hmm. think the closest to a sleeper that I have is probably Grant Riller from Charleston, which is like not great competition in terms of like uh, conference uh, level, but the guy almost plays like a post-injury Derrick Rose, like the, the Derrick Rose that we saw partly in Minnesota and this year in Detroit, like just all sorts of like insane finishes. Like he's a bit shorter than Rose, but like he has that type of ability to hang in there, like just contour his body and finish around the basket. He's very strong, long. Uh, the guy has like a really nice pull-up jumper and a jumper. Like I don't think he's worse as a prospect than like Cole Anthony or Kyra Lewis or all these guards that are going to get picked somewhere in the teens. And Riller is probably going to get picked in the 40s. So like that definitely counts as a sleeper to me. Uh, I think Killian Tilly is also underrated. Like he's mostly related to his injury issues and his health problems because he has like almost had like uh, chronic problems. And, and we don't know if he's like out of it completely and his family has a history with that with his brothers as well. But the, the Frenchman, like to me, he's like a really sk- skilled face-up four. He could play some five in stretches as well, but like type of guy that can you can see starting and playing like quality minutes for a competitive team. Like he's not as explosive, but like he's kind of similar to a degree to Maxi Kliba, the power forward from Mavs. To me, he's like a little bit like for more of a classic uh, vision on, on the NBA, like not as a strong either, but like kind of a Robert Ory type. Like he could do a little bit of everything for you and just hit important shots. So definitely like Tilly a lot. And honestly, my other sleeper was uh, Rokas Jokubaitis, but he pulled off the draft. So like that's kind of the guys I had. Like the other ones kind of have become mainstream as the months have passed by already. So those are the most important ones, I feel like. It's funny, Killian Tilly, five year, more than five years ago, almost six years ago, I think it was an interview I did with Jan Mahinmi on French basketball right. and uh, potential young prospects who could make an impact on the NBA at some point. And he was the first player that Jan Mahinmi mentioned was Killian Tilly. Yeah, I think if he didn't get like injured during his college career, he would probably have left school as a sophomore and been like a... Maybe not a lot of pick, but like a top 20 pick like two years ago. So That's it's kind of unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. As we wind down, I'd love for you to tell us more just a little bit about how you assess this draft class overall, just compared to recent drafts. And would you say that it's pretty guard heavy? I, I see a lot of guards on these mock drafts. Yeah, I think it's very guard heavy. Like what I define as quality or uh, prime picks, which is like, top 45, top 50, because after that, in the second round, it's almost like even if you want to pick a guy, most of the times it's better just to stash somebody in Europe or somebody that has already signed overseas as a professional, so you don't have to like have them come and play for you already, because a lot of times the guys that you might want to pick that are sliding down, their agents kind of force you to not pick them, like they don't want to, they will like like threaten you to like force to sign them and they lose their rights and stuff like that like they don't want to get picked late in the second they prefer to be free agents and decide where to go so like the premium picks like top 45 top 50 like i will have around 20 guards basically which is like if you do the ratios like it's a lot like compared to compared to other positions it's a lot it's like it's lacking 
a little bit everywhere else. Like there's a lot of guards and then the rest is like, eh. But like, I think the depth is okay. Like I like the depth of the class okay. The top is the problem. I think in a top heavy draft, Lamelo is more of a third overall pick and he's like one by a mile for me in this one. And then after that, it's also like the rankings between number two and number nine or number 10. So like the rest of the top 10 is where the problem is more or less. Like it's a problematic in every class because there's a talent drop, even though there is not this, like there is a talent drop always in that range between sometimes it's at five, sometimes it's at six. This year is at two for me, which is worse, of course. But like this talent drop sometimes doesn't equate with the way the picks are valued or viewer on the league. So almost always strategically, the smartest move is to trade down from the late top 10 because you are almost really likely to find a similar player paying less per year and getting other assets on the way. If you pick somebody in the teens, kind of like that's just the way the talent works overall in this in normal classes. The problem with this class is just like it gets flat super quick after like the top three guys for me, three, four guys, like it would just flatten a lot. So it's just the problem with like if you have a pick number four and you're going to have expectations from your fans and you pick somebody that could be as good as somebody that gets picked in the early 20s. So like that's kind of the like the lack of uh, agreement between public perception and the real talent in this class. Is there one part of the draft, a certain team drafting or um, certain player, if that player slips, that that will alter the rest of the draft? significantly like something that you could see that will change the momentum i think think that's a good question like there are a few swings in that sense like i think Mm -hmm. like for example like i expect chicago to pick uh, danny avdia but if he doesn't get picked there i feel like he will go to cleveland next and that that means like the guy that cleveland is supposed to pick might slide all the way to number eight for example i think atlanta is another one like they could go a few different ways like i expect them to pick tyrus halliburton but if he doesn't get picked by them, I don't know where he la- where he lands. Like he's supposed to be this consensus top eight guy, almost like top six for all year long, and I don't know what happens with him if he doesn't get picked at six. Like I don't think he's going to Detroit. Like I mentioned with the half promise or promise to Patrick Williams, I don't think New York likes him very much. Phoenix maybe will be the one landing spot, and so he could slide all the way to late lottery range, kinda. And then people have been like, I already have that factor in. People like Onyeka Okongwu a lot from USC. I think he's going to get picked around the range that I feel he should go. But like uh, people are going to f- feel a bit probably like down on him sliding all the way to most likely number nine, honestly, uh, I feel like. So that's part of it. I guess if Golden State surprises the world and takes somebody else other than Wiseman or Edwards, that will also change things quite a bit. I don't expect any trades in the top 10. I think the only one that could happen and is more or less the most possible one is if Charlotte actually trades up with Golden State and they give like some sort of minor asset to secure themselves uh, selecting James Wiseman number two instead of risking uh, Golden State uh, taking him. So they kind of pay Golden State for the difference between uh, yeah. what Golden State feels Wiseman is better than the alternative at number three, kind of. This is really good stuff. I'm always learning so much about the draft and, and just, just players and scouting in general when I talk to you. I just have one more final thing before we close. For the average NBA fan who hasn't really heard or read much going into the draft, maybe they waited until this last week to do more research and learn more. What are your guidelines on the best resources for good prospect information? And also, just specifically, which analysts do you trust the most? I know you you told me Jonathan Gavoni 
is a, a really trustworthy one. Are there any others or do you mostly just focus on his insight? Honestly, like, I mean, I know people think like Wox is like with the whole insight that he has over the NBA, like he has like such a difference between him and other reporters. I think the difference between Giboni and the rest of the draft reporters out there is insane. I don't care for his own opinions about prospects all that much. Like, I don't think I get to learn that much there outside of like Intel about their personal lives or like some sort of like background information because he has more uh, access there. But like when it comes to like projections and where guys might go, like he's definitely the best by a mile. If you are interested in that sort of thing, I will go there. If you want to go for scouting, I think, I mean, the website that we kind of like I collaborate with sometimes as a like consultant brain trust, like we help each other. We haven't done as much this year, but like I think we have a couple guys that write there uh, of the times that are really good. Like, I mean, Zach Milner, uh, he's been like churning these pieces lately, which is, are really good about like different uh, aspects of the, of the draft. And Spencer Perman, who did like uh, a bunch of scouting reports, uh, he's also very, very good and very detail oriented. Like, I think you will learn a lot just by reading them too. And honestly, I mean, those are the guys that I go to most, and the guys I talk to the most, all outside of the ones that were already picked up by NBA teams. And I would say that, I mean, I don't really like use his name that much because he's like more of a biomechanics expert, but I always learn a lot from at Polar Fall in Twitter when it comes to analyzing that type of like stuff. Like we were talking about Pokrasevsky before. So like trying to think how his body might develop or how he might fill up. Like he's kind of like a physician himself, like this uh, Korean guy that I'm talking about, Polar Fall. And like he knows a lot about the human body in that sense. So it's always helpful for me the way he thinks about stuff, like the way he follows shoot and like how he puts things together is is a good good follow wow that's really interesting there are a lot of resources but i'll let you go so much information packed into a short amount of time thanks for joining me and hanging out for a little bit today my pleasure stay tuned we'll be right back with more show This is David Cohan, co-creator and executive producer of Will and Grace on the NBA Beat. Hey, Agu, are you ready to talk about your book? What's up? I am ready. It was enjoyable to read, really entertaining, and let's just, let's do this thing. Well, thank you for the nice comment, but yeah, let's go ahead. No problem. So the first thing I wanted to learn about with regard to the book is how did the idea materialize and how long did it take from start to finish? So start to finish was August to August. So August, 2019 to August, 2020. Um, so I'd say a full year. And the original idea was I wanted to write about the Ewing theory, which is um, the best player on a team gets injured and the team inexplicably plays better. The idea was essentially to interview writers and podcast hosts and media people about teams that they thought fit that criteria and I would dissect them. Within like a week or two, I realized that I was going to get zero interviews because I'm nobody and I you know, accepted that. Um, and I sent my editor an article that I had done on the Oklahoma City Thunder titled The Dynasty That Never Was. And I just kind of broke down how they got, you know, Russell Westbrook, Kevin Durant, James Harden, all those guys, and how it fell apart without like even a single championship. And my editor thought it was a great idea and he wanted to see if I wanted to do that for more. And we kind of cracked at it with that and I started going through the teams that had won the most championships and um, basically took off from there. That's an interesting 
genesis of it. I did like that chapter too, near the end of the book on those thunder that didn't end up winning at all. Yeah, it's one of my favorites too. It's a little bit tweaked from the original article, but it's uh, it's a tight chapter. That's cool though, how it started as an article on that and then it turned out into so much more than that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I, I would, just a basic straightforward question for you, if you could identify one or, or maybe a couple, what's the most thrilling part of the process for you so far? Um, I think mainly it was talking about it, you know, not to be like uh, narcissistic or anything. But, um, <laughs> I was hopping up on a couple podcasts before it was published and after it was published just to talk about the book in general and talk about it with other people that are in the NBA. With, with book, it's sort of a one way communication. I write it and someone else reads it. So I really do like having conversations about the NBA as well. So when I get to talk to people that I honestly feel like I don't have any like reason to talk to, you know, I'm on people's podcasts without any real credentials. I got this book out um, and just, you know, ch- chat about the book or chat about the NBA in general. It's my favorite part. Honestly, it's always the highlight of my week or day whenever I hop on. Me too. And and I guess it would be a problem if it wasn't hosting this podcast, but I, I love the back and forth and the dialogue. I think going in, whether you're a writer or not, probably the idea of writing a book can sound a little bit intimidating. For you, what's the most important thing you learned either during the process or after publication? Um, I guess... I would have to say learning along the way was uh, the research. You know, mm-hmm. once I had my research done for a chapter, I could bang out a chapter within a couple of days. You know, it wouldn't take very long. But I didn't realize that the research was far and away the longest part of the process. I was doing research for probably three times the amount of time that I was writing. So I guess important thing to learn is um, probably have a better system in place uh, in, in terms of research, something more uh, generalized for each chapter. So it's easier instead of just like, there are things I need to figure out for this chapter. Let's go Google, you know? Yeah. And going along with that, was it a little bit of a learning curve to get your organizational system in place? Um, like where you have certain documents, like in which folders and, and then as you're writing each chapter, where you find certain elements of the research? So I would say that it was a struggle in terms of the organization, mainly because I never figured it out. I still have a folder with like 30 uh, notes, like scrawled out. Most of it is just like formula calculations that I only did by hand because I didn't want to do it anywhere else. And it's all like not organized by chapter. It's all around. Um, So for organization, 100%, I think it would be a lot easier if I had... um, Sort of, uh, I, mean, I was still in school full time doing it. So if I had more of a an office or a studio where I could work on the book and keep things in a sort of file cabinet where I would, but I didn't really have that as I was writing. Yeah, I'm writing a book too, and I know from personal experience that the organizational system for me it took a long time to develop, and it's still not fully there, but. It's just that time can really add up when you're um, not knowing where to find certain things when you're writing. It's it's so much easier and efficient to be able to know exactly where to look when you need a certain piece of information, whether it's research or quotes from a, a certain person. And so um, for me, at least, that was probably the most challenging part of the process. Yeah, I fully agree. So... 
Your writing style really popped out to me. I would describe it as really conversational, uh, funny, sarcastic at times, opinionated, and you were a central part of the story, in my opinion. To what extent was that style inspired by other writers that you look up to or or books that you've read that, that you've really appreciated? Or was it just how you write naturally? So, um, first, thanks. Obviously, people that think they're funny like to be called funny, but I'm really glad to use the word conversational because I do think that it is. It's a very casual setting while I'm trying to you know throw a bunch of facts at you, which was kind of the feel. Um, I don't think there's a lot of inspiration from other writing. I think if people read it, they'd think that there's some similarities to Shea Serrano, which is a very fair compare. It's a fair thought. I wouldn't say it's a fair comparison because obviously he's a three-time New York bestseller and I'm me. Um, but I actually hadn't read anything of his until uh, halfway through the book. Someone just like read some stuff of mine and was like, you should probably check out Shea Serrano. I was like, oh, this is awesome. you know. Um, but I just wrote it the way I talk. Honestly, um, I'm a bit sarcastic. I'm a bit opinionated. I'm a bit mean, but in a let's get it along kind of way, you know. I mean, <laughs> during the book, but it's always like just keep up. You're fine, you know. Um, yeah. So I, yeah, I, I just wrote it like uh, how I talk. Honestly, that's how it was, and that's how I've written for all of my um, articles. I've been blessed to work with for very low stakes blog sites with editors that don't give me very many critiques. So I've been able to write the way that I've wanted to for most of my life, which is uh, super cool. And I think you can make a case for there being benefits either way. But I think um, one really important benefit for writing in a conversational voice is that it's really easy to digest and you can not really know that much about the NBA and jump right into it and pretty much understand everything that's going on. I would say, is that some of the feedback that you've gotten that there are new NBA fans that appreciate reading it? Yeah. I've had the comments that like a couple people were like, the only time I got lost is when you talked about goaltending and you didn't explain it. So, I mean, if that's the only time that people got lost, I feel like there was a success because I didn't want to write this for basketball fans. I'm a very intense basketball fan, but I wanted like my friends to be able to read it. People that aren't into basketball and just kind of pick it up. Cause it's, it's a book about basketball, not a shout out to Bill Simmons, accidentally. <laughs> but you know, um, but I wanted to write something fun as well. I didn't want to write a dissertation was like my biggest thing. Yeah. And with your dad being a professor, you probably could have. Yeah, that's true. And uh, he might be a little bit more proud about it if I did. But we <laughs> <laughs> uh, Maybe the next book. Yeah, maybe. We'll see. <laughs> um, the lineage of success and winning is how you phrased it. I, I think that element of the NBA – is really interesting and you make a good case for why that's a unique quality that distinguishes the league from all the other major North American sports leagues. You are constantly able to ask the reader, remember him in pretty much every chapter, it seemed like other than the beginning, expand more upon that dynamic. If you can. Sure. I think it's the coolest thing of the book. Honestly, it was my favorite part was just like, oh, there's that dude. And there's like dozens of other remember him moments that I didn't do because there's a guy, uh, I think his name is Chuck Person, was traded for 
Scottie Pippen at some point, and he was included in another trade like five years later for another superstar. And he's only ever mentioned in those trades. And I just wanted to be like, remember him, even though they wouldn't, you know? Um, but uh, I just thought it was the coolest thing. I, I think there's a very clear lineage uh, of success. The people that win at the biggest stage in the NBA, if they stay in that organization, typically do the same thing. And if they move to another organization, they typically do the same thing there as well. Uh, Phil Jackson's the great example, you know, two three-peats with the Bulls and then a three-peat with the Lakers after and a career in New York that we won't talk about. Um and then uh, the same thing with Steve Kerr with the uh, the three-peat with the Bulls and a championship with the Spurs, still the only modern-era player to win four championships in a row. Um, I think my favorite's Pat Riley, though. I mean, Pat Riley's just an assassin. You know, he's a basketball assassin. He takes teams to the highest level and makes them win every single time. Even with the Knicks, he's probably had the most – uh, competitive and successful Knicks rosters and teams since their championship days in the 70s, you know, and since then it's all been downhill. So I think especially Pat Riley is like the gold example of the lineage in the NBA. And Jerry West is another one I think oh, yeah. is really cool with all the front offices, the Warriors and, and Clippers that he's currently in. And, um, and of course, his legendary success with the Lakers as well. Even yeah. though he didn't win, he didn't win that many rings, though. Yeah, no, I think it was just one as a player with the Lakers. But then, I mean, he's the guy. Yeah, that, I, I should have said as a player. Yeah, he recruited Shaq. Uh, he uh, facilitated the trade for Kobe, so he built that dynasty. Uh, when he was with Golden State, he was the only one that uh, vetoed a trade, Clay Thompson for Kevin Love, which obviously was the right choice at this point. No disrespect to Kevin Love, big fan. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, and he's, he just knows what it takes. And then he built that Clippers team that obviously, uh, fell apart at the end there. But I mean, he built a roster that many people would put in the consensus top three before the season. Yeah. And they're still in contention too. While they, while they have Paul George and Kawhi Leonard and Jerry West was really integral in turning the Grizzlies around too, right? Even though they didn't end up winning a championship. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the the Grizzlies had like every possible bad draft pick for like a decade, and then Jerry West started changing things around. It, 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 those guys have legacies. It's like Pat Riley's Knicks era, Jerry West's Memphis era. They, they still did good things, but they couldn't pull it off all the way. Yeah, that's a good point. We just talked about some of the main people, and then there's other ones like uh, maybe Robert Ory, um, James Jones. Uh, yeah. John Sally, I guess, would, would be another one. Are there, are there um, ones that are low-key favorites of yours that we haven't mentioned? Um, I think a low-key future favorite is going to be Iguodala. I don't know if it's with the Heat, but I think he's going to be a valuable bench piece for another championship before he's done at this point. He's just the, – the teams that he joins just have a mentality. You know, it's always tough as nails, and they're always playing defense. I mean, those Philly teams with Drew Holiday back in the day were so much fun, you know. And then he moves to Golden State. I think, I mean, I, it doesn't fully answer your question, but I think a future one of those guys that I'm going to be one of my all-time favorites is going to be Iggy at some point. That's okay. That's actually a really good transition because I wanted to talk about what you wrote about Miami near the end of the book where you were talking about the top – ranked dynasty score teams right. uh, based on your formula and you had the Miami Heat at four and of course this book was published 
before the bubble in Orlando and before the, the NBA playoffs where the Heat surprised many and they, they got to the finals, even though they were the fifth seed. And looking back to that passage of the book, it makes a lot of sense why. It's not just Jimmy Butler and, uh, and you know, Iguodala being part of that dynasty with the Warriors, his presence there and the presence of Pat Riley, but also the supporting cast. Those eight guys that qualified as solid role players, that's a lot of depth. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about what you saw in the Heat and why they ranked so high on the formula. For me, uh, according to the formula, it was mainly the role players. But if you want to go a little bit deeper than the numbers, they stocked up on two-way wings. That's how you win in this league at this point, okay? And it was kind of a low-key trade at the time, but they traded Justice Winslow and a kind of first-round pick. I don't think it's going to convey at any point for the Grizzlies. For Iguodala, Jay Crowder, and to a lesser extent, Solomon Hill. Three guys that can make threes and defend like hell. And they got three two-way wings in a trade. I mean, I don't know how the league let them do that. It was ridiculous. And Jay Crowder was shooting like 45% from three during the playoffs. Um, so they stacked up, stacked up. And the other thing that they did was, if you're not going to have top 10 players, even though Jimmy probably talked himself into the conversation for getting to the finals... But they got the guys you want. You want guys that are all-world defenders and can make baskets inside. And with Bam and Jimmy, they have those two things. And because that uh, they have those skills, the team completely changes. You know, They were able to start Duncan Robinson and Tyler Hero that basically just let dudes go to the basket and still have like a top three defense. You know, um, So it was the cohesion and the emphasis on sort of defense for me. And along those lines... It's a star-driven league. Everyone always talks about that, even though it's a cliche. It really seems to be true, and with increasing frequency nowadays with these so-called super teams. But clearly, just possessing a star or a couple stars, that's rarely enough to put a team over the top for a title, let alone creating a dynasty. You usually need, as you argue, strong team defense, or at least competent team defense, and a capable supporting cast around those stars. How important are those two qualities in the team? The importance of team defense and a supporting cast is the difference between a three-peat and making the playoffs for 22 straight years. So, I mean, in that very specific example, I'm talking about the Kobe Shaq Lakers and the San Antonio Spurs. Um, The Lakers, I mean, go head-to-head probably would beat them, you know, maybe, maybe not if it's the David Robinson, uh, Tim Duncan team from 2004, I think. Earlier than that, it was 90-something, 99. Talent-wise, probably better. And they had solid role players, too. Rick Fox, Robert Ory, and Derek Fisher. But when you look at the numbers, there be uh, the BPMs beyond them, there was always just five or six guys that were considered competent beyond Kobe and Shaq. And at the end, you know, they were getting injuries and Shaq got traded. The differences with the Spurs, they surrounded Tim Duncan with the supporting cast of literally a lifetime. His entire lifetime, he had the incredible supporting cast. They got him Tony Parker, a super fast scoring guard. They got Manu Ginobili, who's almost the same thing, but you include a little bit of uh, Euro stepping and some assisting there. They got him Bruce Bowen, who, you know, say what you will about his dirty plays, which he did, was an all-world defender and a three-point shooter. Um 
Bramberry, which is a shooter, you know. Then they got a bunch of guys that just play. The biggest thing with the Spurs is they got guys that can play decent, you know, barely above average guys, but they had like 10 of them. So if a couple of them failed, they had four guys that almost never did, you know. Tiago Splitter, rebound, finish any basket inside if it's not LeBron. And uh, those types of guys, they, they got them the role players that fit around and they continued to funnel them in. And for that, I mean, they they uh, didn't make the playoffs this year. They broke the streak, but was it 22 straight years? That sounds right. Yeah. And the Lakers were still good after uh, Shaq got traded, but it took them a little while and a very nice trade for them and Paul Gasol to get back to contending. I meant to ask this earlier, but what was the process like for you devising that formula? The formula, I didn't even think about it until halfway I was uh, through the book. It was just going to be what I had written. Um, but I was, as I was writing about the more modern teams, you know, I was hitting up, not even just modern, but like the, the 70s teams, like the Magic Cream Lakers and those types of guys. Um, I just started noticing a bunch of similarities in terms of what they had compared to other teams that had won before. And I figured, well, if I can quantify this in any way, I could, you know, develop a little formula. So it took about a week or two of just tinkering and figuring out which categories made sense and then running through the teams over and over again to make sure the results made sense. You know, if the, the Golden State Warriors have a better overall dynasty DNA score than the Bulls, that might make sense. But when you look at the Bulls, um, 72 and 10 win season, having the highest score of all, that makes sense. So once I got a, a result that I thought um, would be accepted, I guess, I figured that was the way to go. But it only took about a week or two of tinkering and a lot of just handwritten notes just scrawling around. Your formula, you only ran the numbers for the state of, of the teams during the summer or as, yeah. of, as of then. So injuries could really hurt a team like the Nets and Warriors, for instance. So I'm thinking you may say one of them, but of the teams that didn't rank in your top six in dynasty score, which do you believe has the best chance of becoming a dynasty or resuming their dynasty status? Uh, I prepped three that I'll just run through really quickly. At number 11 was the Mavericks. They've got Luka Doncic, a generational player. He's going to be top five for most of his career, barring any injuries. Um, and when you have that, that's basically your ticket to a, to a dynasty if you have the management behind them to build a team, which they seem to have. I mean, Rick Carlisle has been a legit coach for however long he's been in the league. It's been decades, I think, at this yeah. point. And um, Donnie Nelson is still their GM, I think, and he's been making moves. And they got Kristaps, and Kristaps is injury prone. We're worried about that. If you got those two players, the surrounding cast is going to matter, but not as much as it should. I think they could win a ton. At number 13 was the Nuggets, and I put them down specifically because both Jokic and Murray recently signed long-term max contracts. So they have their two best players for the next five or six years locked down, and for that, I think they have a very good chance just for that continuity. And number 26, you did mention it, it is the Brooklyn Nets. I didn't mention the Warriors just because everyone's talked about the Warriors for most of my basketball life, and I don't want to talk about them anymore. <laughs> um, but they were at number 26, and it was 100% because of the injuries. Kyrie barely played. He didn't make any teams, uh, All-NBA or All-Star, so he didn't count for many points for them, and KD missed the entire season. And I wasn't really sold on them as a team because of chemistry issues and injury uh, concerns, 
But the hiring of Steve Nash and the hiring of assistants, Amari Stoudemire, who can handle the players, and Mike D'Antoni, who can build a, who can help Nash build an offense that's a little bit more seasoned, I guess. I think they're going to be pretty dangerous if they're healthy. They're not getting hardened, though. That trade rumor is garbage. I'm just saying that rumors are heating up that yeah. the Nets are the leading contender to acquire Harden. Whether or not that happens, we'll see. Yeah. And I am a little skeptical too, but yeah. it's interesting and something to consider, I guess. Yeah, I think the Nets are going to land someone if it's a true holiday or someone else. But their best offer for Harden is what? Jared Allen, Karis LeVert, Spencer Dinwiddie, and a pick? That's like a third of what they'll get from 20 other teams in the league. I just seriously doubt that they'll trade him to do a favor to Kyrie and KD. You know? Yeah, I, I think amid this broader discussion, it's important to note how rare a dynasty comes along in the NBA. It's like one every 10 years, as you know, in the book. And so it's kind of a crapshoot to to predict which team is going to be the next dynasty. And also, as we've seen, it's hard to keep these really talented cores together for so long. Egos get involved and there are other issues like injuries, for instance, like we saw with, with the Warriors. But just based on that response you just gave, I think it's one of the most exciting times in the NBA in, in a while with so many young cores all around the league. Yeah, the, the NBA needs to do a better job of um, marketing their young players, but the league is in good hands for sure. I, I think that you put that well. Is there anything else that you want to say before we close out? This was a pleasure getting a chance to talk to you about your book. Um, uh, I'll leave on a hot take, I guess. Um, <laughs> a lot of uh, trade rumors, and um, a lot of them are probably going to go through in the next day or two. The Bucks are hotly rumored to be trading for Bogdan Bogdanovich, who I'm a big fan of. My hot take is if they trade for him, he looks like Diet Doncic in the next season. <laughs> and just to clarify, this is Bogdan from the Kings, not Boyan from the Pacers. Yes, correct. Not related from different countries. I figured that out very recently. A bit ignorant on my part. Many B. Bogdanoviches around hitting threes from the outside. They absolutely are. Thanks a lot, Agu. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This was super fun. It was, and enjoy the draft and next season coming up quick. Yeah, it is. You too.